movie Booksmart, two young women about to graduate from high school spend one last night trying to catch up on everything they missed. Starring Beanie Feldstein and Caitlin Deaver, it's the directing debut of actress Olivia Wilde. The cast also includes Jessica Williams, Billy Lord, Jason Sudeikis, Lisa Kudrow, and many more. And we really like it. I'm Stephen Thompson. And I'm Linda Holmes. Here with me and Stephen in the studio is Glenn Weldon of NPR's Arts Desk. Hey, Glenn. Hey, Linda. And in our fourth chair, it's always such a pleasure, our friend, a writer, an all-around good pal, Katie Presley. Hi, Katie. Howdy. And, uh, you know, we've brought Katie here in part because she, like me, has some experience being a high school girl. And we are going to come around to Katie, but I'm going to start actually with Stephen, if that's okay. Sure. Because you told me how excited you were about this movie when you saw it. Tell me about your excitement. Yeah, I absolutely loved this movie. This is a coming-of-age movie. This is a one-last-big-party movie. This is a long-night-of-adventure movie. But above all, this is a friendship movie between these two wonderful characters played by Beanie Feldstein and Caitlin Deaver. There are many ancillary characters. This movie is empathetic toward those ancillary characters. I just wanted to live in this friendship. And I will say, I am deeply, deeply hopeful that Olivia Wilde and this cast find a way to just regroup and get back together a la the Before Sunrise movies and just revisit these characters. I just want to swim around in these people's lives every few years. Check in with them when they're in college. Check in with them in young adulthood. Check in with them in middle age. I just want to revisit these characters, these actors. I found this movie so smart and so winning and so fundamentally at its core kind. Oh yeah, I, I agree with that. Katie, what did you think? Well, so this movie takes place in L.A., and I think one of the ways that it functions so well is as an L.A. movie. My favorites were toward the end, the girls are getting in the car and they say, Waze says 19, we're going to make it in seven. And that's obviously like we're very late and we need to be somewhere in seven, but that is also the most L.A. Like we are going to defy space time. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you, the streets of L.A. occasionally allow you to do that. Also, tidbit, which I find scrumptious, when they are stuck at the pizza place, one of the many times when you think the adventure is crashing to a halt, Molly makes a desperate phone call and she just says, we're at Geno's on Victory Boulevard, and then the phone dies. Victory Boulevard is in North Hollywood. It is four blocks north of the Circus Liquors where Cher Horowitz is held up in oh. Clueless. <laughs> and I really, like, I knew it instantly. She nice. said Victory Boulevard, and I was like, oh, mwah, mwah, mwah. <laughs> Could not have made that better. And the third and final fabulous L.A. thing is the teacher, hilariously accurately named Ms. Fine, played by Jessica Williams, Mm -hmm. shows up at this party. And if you have ever been an L.A., like, pulling it out of thin air, if you went to a theater school in Los Angeles, (laughs) California... And continued to go to school plays for years after you graduated because you got a false impression of your own importance whilst <laughs> whilst in the theater program. Mm-hmm. You will understand why a probably early 30s teacher will show up at the party to be at mm-hmm. and uh, wonder what she's doing there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's funny when you mention those things that are like the moments when the adventure might be crashing. One of the things I love about the way that the film 
attacks this kind of out all night story is that things keep happening where something bad happens or something weird happens and you expect the girls to just be in a panic. Mm -hmm. And when you see them, they're just laughing. They have the urgency of a we're going to go have an all night party, but they don't have the misery of kind of, oh, my gosh, we can't handle it. So when somebody acts bizarre and they have to make a run for it, when they get outside, they're laughing hysterically, which is what you would actually be doing. I don't know. Glenn, what did you think? Uh, going into this film, I was uh, it was going to be a tough sell for me because uh, don't send me back to high school. I don't want to go to high school again. Yeah. And if you're going to send me back to high school, you got to paint it black. Uh, uh, Heather's election. That's it. Just those two. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Short list. This is not a dark movie. This is sunny. This is bright. This is very sweet. It is, as Stephen said, hugely empathetic. But what actually won me over in the end was the directing. Olivia Wilde's directing. There's stylistic touches here. I wasn't expecting in a Mm -hmm. film like this. There's an argument between the two friends that happens late in the film. So smart. Which is so smart because we follow that argument up to the point in arguments when the people have stopped advancing their cause and start just, they're pot committed, they stand their ground and they just start scoring points. And the film notes that precise moment when that happens in an argument and does something very smart with it. I don't want to spoil. But you talked in your very smart review, Linda, about the casting. Please say more about that because that was such a good point. So the best thing that can happen in any movie for me is to see the credit go up that it was cast by Allison Jones. Allison Jones cast Parks and Rec. She cast Brooklyn Nine-Nine, The Good Place, that run of shows, but also Freaks and Geeks. The Paul Feig kind of strand of Bridesmaids and Spy. Uh She's one of the best and smartest casting directors that you can find. And there is a mix here of people that you you sort of know who range from pretty well-established, like Jason Sudeikis, for example, Uh who has a supporting role as one of the other adults so to speak, in the film. And Beanie Feldstein, who's kind of been coming up through Lady Bird and, and a couple other things. And th- but then also there's a there are a bunch of, of kids in this movie who are mostly not very familiar, some of whom are new to acting. There is uh, an actress named Victoria Ruesga who plays a character named Ryan, who is the object of the crush of Amy, who is the character played by uh, Caitlin Deaver. And Ryan's sexuality is kind of uncertain, so Amy is unsure whether she would be receptive anyway. <laughs> Plus, it's a crush, right? And Victoria Ruesga is not an actress. She's a skateboarder. And I think from her... And from her kind of open, non-actory quality, you get that that appeal, but also that kind of inscrutability yes. of, of she's just kind of this awesome energy and Amy isn't sure what to do with that. She, I think she's great in it and she's not an actor. And it's just cool when you get casting that uncovers those great folks um, because it is we haven't talked too much about the fact that it is a, uh, in part a queer love story with Amy and Molly is this kind of overbearing super supportive friend <laughs> over supportive over yeah. so it's like is that a thing being over supportive sure. the movie would posit yes mm-hmm. sure I think well you mentioned queer love stories and I, I thought a lot watching this movie about a movie we talked about a year or two ago called Love Simon mm. and Love Simon is a gay coming of age story that is in many ways very, very quaint. And part of its appeal is that it's very quaint. But to me, watching it, the one thing I really didn't take to about it was that it was very clearly a movie about high school from the perspective of someone who went to high school in the 90s. And so 
it did not pick up at all on contemporary high school experience in which queer kids are not, at least in large urban high schools, are not a particularly even novel. Mm-hmm. And so I remember watching Love, Simon with my daughter who kind of rolled her eyes as we were walking out of the movie. She liked the movie, but was like, man, there's one gay kid in this entire school. She's like, I have friends who identify as trans. I have friends who identify as pansexual. I have friends who, I, you know, and this movie understood that this movie felt while it is not i think in any way a particularly realistic view of high school of like scenes shot there are movie scenes it is not hyper realistic i don't think about high school nor do i expect it to be but it felt so much more plugged in and so much more contemporary as something that i think high schoolers and college kids and just young people of all stripes will see themselves in this movie in ways that i don't think they've always gotten to see themselves in teen comedies right and the other thing that it's smart about is just dramatically so we start off by dividing the school into broad types right. because that's what this kind of film does and my favorite high school film heathers is is a is a satire so the work of that film is to delineate those types so hard they kind of move into caricature right. and that's what you work with in heathers the only character with any kind of depth or roundedness is the main one and that's the way these things typically go but before this night is through in this film Every character, as you guys mentioned, gets to show a different facet of themselves, gets to undercut what you think they are and and be vulnerable. There's a a scene where Molly, Beanie Feldstein's character, becomes privy to what some other kids in her school are thinking about her. And one of the things I love about it is she learns... It's not that it's not painful, but she doesn't learn, you know, we hate her. We think she's terrible. Those kids feel separated from her, partly because they feel she separates herself from them. And so there's not as much hostility to her as there is just kind of like, well, she doesn't want to be friends with anybody. Like, it's a very, very subtle thing. And when I started watching the film, I kept thinking, what high school type are they telling us she is? Mm -hmm. Because she gets up, she's very driven. She's the class president. So I'm thinking she's a Tracy Flick kind of unpopular, but driven. And then you see her like dancing goofily with her friend and you realize, no, it's not quite that. And she's not exactly unpopular in the way that you're thinking. She's somewhat isolated and she's intelligent, but she's also wants to have friends and other people kind of think she's interesting and want to be friends with her and she's weird about it. And then you kind of think, oh, no, maybe she's the lovable loser underdog. And it's like, no, it's not that. either. Mm-hmm. She's not a type. Katie, what did you think of these girls as kind of characters in a high school movie? I think actually talking about the queer story, I think the ways that queerness comes up in this movie make it very specifically current high school. But I think absolutely the way they talk to each other is not like I think the target audience for how they speak to each other is for people like within five years of my age, which is 32. You know, I think we will think everything was pitch perfect. Um, I think that one of the things that worked so well for me was the to me, it's anxiety producing, but it's like just the thrum of current high school life. These two terrifying things, which are one, omnipresence of media, which as they're trying to find the party is useful because they're getting these missives. They're like checking somebody's feed and seeing video and thinking, okay, the party's still going. We can still make it. And then also at a very vulnerable moment, the blue light of a phone camera coming up in the background, like it made my blood run cold. And I think digital natives who watch this will think, uh, duh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I also think that 
the way the girls grapple with Amy's crush in particular was really powerful to me and, again, like filled me with dread. So I came to my queerness in college, so I did not have to... um, I was not wrestling with this really in high school. school. And so, like, this layer of now everybody is exactly what they want to be and so you have to figure out like what someone's deal even is mm-hmm. terrifying yeah so terrifying like you have yeah. a crush and that's already terrifying because like you're gonna sit next to them in class and that's oh what if they know mm-hmm. but now it's like are we even the same mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i also really loved the fact that when they get to this party and they kind of both by then are somewhat pursuing crushes these two girls are somewhat pursuing people that they're interested in you know there's a pursuit of ryan and a conversation with ryan on amy's part but then on molly's part there's a conversation with this boy who you know it's complicated how she feels about him and i think they do this in both stories so often when somebody encounters a crush the result is either cruelty or satisfaction. And so often the actual experience of confronting a crush is neither of those things (laughs) because the worst thing that can happen is that it has just kind of never occurred to this person or it occurs to them just enough that they sort of will feed it for a while. Because what I loved about the Molly half of this story is like he likes her. She's cute. It's not that he doesn't like her, despite the fact that you get the feeling pretty quickly that probably this is not the right guy mm-hmm. for her. Yeah. <laughs> he likes her. He likes flirting with her. He thinks she's cute and they have chemistry and they're allowed to have chemistry, I think, without that undoing the fact that it turns out to be, you know, I don't think it's a spoiler to say, not a fully satisfying experience. Mm-hmm. And so... I loved that. This is a wonderfully directed film full of directorial choices and surprises that are so beyond what you think they're going to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, so that's Booksmart, directed by Olivia Wilde, hopefully in a theater near you. Tell us what you think if you get a chance to see it. Find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PCHH or tweet us at PCHH. When we come back, it's going to be time to talk about what's making us happy this week. So come right back. Support for NPR and the following message come from Luminary, the only place you can listen to the new podcast Anthem from John Cameron Mitchell and Brian Weller. Anthem is a podcast musical with 31 original songs delivered by 40 actors, including Tony Award winners Glenn Close and Patti LuPone. Listen to Anthem and other original podcasts only on Luminary. Visit luminary.link slash happy hour for your first two months of Luminary's premium content free. Cancel anytime. Terms apply. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Sub-Zero Refrigeration, Wolf Cooking, and Cove Dishwashing. Here's head demonstration chef Joel Chesbro on the benefits of gathering around a common table. One of the beautiful things about being a chef is that I can use those resources to bring people together around a delicious meal. This is what food does. Allow you to have these wonderful moments of human interaction. Cook, create, and live deliciously with Sub-Zero Wolf and Cove. Visit subzero-wolf.com. Welcome back to Pop Culture Happy Hour. It's time for our favorite segment of this week. And let's face it, every week, what is making us happy this week? Steven Boom Boom Thompson, what is making you happy this week? <laughs> 
the day we were recording this, May 24th, I get to interview the director and all-around icon John Waters uh, at a book signing here in D.C. And to prepare for said event, I have read a book. Uh, It is called Mr. Know-It-All, The Tarnished Wisdom of a Filth Elder, Uh, a perfect (laughs) title for a book of essays by John Waters. Never has the idea of an audiobook been so redundant Uh because when you read this book absolutely every word of it you hear in that exact precise voice of John Waters himself as he expounds on everything from drugs to Catholicism to a lot of his later movies to an experience taking LSD with a couple of his friends at the age of 70. It is a very, very mixed bag. I enjoy his storytelling a little bit more than his comedy. And this book has a kind of a combination of both. But man, it has just been wonderful to just swim around in this guy's transgressive brain for 360 pages. It is a joy. He is a joy. I hope our conversation goes well, uh, but I am delighted to recommend uh, this very uh, light and lively and fun book, Mr. Know-It-All, The Tarnished Wisdom of a Filth Elder. Thank you very much, Stephen Thompson. Glenn Weldon, what is making you happy this week? Good Omens premieres on Amazon Prime the day this episode drops, May 31st. It's six hour-long episodes about an angel and a demon teaming up to stave off the end of the world. Uh, It's based on a novel by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman that I suspect more than half of the listeners have already read. I'm going to say 63%. They got it absolutely right, so so don't worry about it. Uh, Michael Sheen plays the angel. He's doing fussy, fusty, flustered. David Tennant is the demon going full-on Bill Nye by way of Keith Richards. The voice of God is Francis McDormand. Sure. Is cheating, I mean, frankly. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, yeah, like yeah. how dare you? Into yeah. it. Uh, talk, a, talk about redundant. I know, right? There's a lot of apocalyptic IP out there right now, but this one gets the tone of the novel precisely right. There's a very English coziness to it. Uh, that's kind of what the Hitchhiker's Guide, uh, the book, not the movie, uh, had. And if you can imagine Mad Max Fury Road, where Furiosa is played by Miss Marple. That's sort of the <laughs> vibe we're talking about wow. here. Wow. It's what? funny. Every, every, everybody who listens to this show just went, dude. <laughs> uh-huh. It's really well acted. It looks expensive. Uh, and it winds up being about friendship in a really smart way. So that's Good Omens on Amazon Prime right now. Fantastic. Thank you, Glenn Weldon. Katie Presley, what is making you happy this week? Well, so you think 63% of listeners have already read that book. I'm going to say a solid 85 have read the book I'm about to recommend. Uh Uh, But hey, others, I have a book for you. (laughs) Uh, Normal People by Sally Rooney. I love Sally Rooney. She's a young Irish writer. I'm warning you, her books cause you to go enter a hypnotic, trance-like fugue state from which you emerge and hope that like your children are not dead from starvation because you have started reading and now it's a day later. Mm-hmm. So sorry in advance, um, get a babysitter. <laughs> uh, she writes about hyper-eloquent young adults who are also fluent in Marxism and bring it up casually over cigarettes in conversation at uni. She does the same kind of thing that Otessa Moshfeg does, which is it feels like a sleight of hand as you're reading because these are just normal people. Both authors have their characters get to pretty terrible places by utterly relatable means. So every step of the way you're thinking, yep, oh yeah, uh uh-huh, I would do that. And then kablammo, you're at step Z and you're like, wow, this is terrible. And it feels like a trick, but it's not. It's just 
preternaturally observant. The humanity of these characters is so true. And Normal People follows a a pair of kids who start in high school. One of them, his mother is employed by the mother of the other. So there's this weird class dynamic to them, but they have always had an understanding. And so the book follows them for several years as they keep coming back to each other and they spin out pretty far from each other and from like a healthy, productive life. But something magical and alchemical happens when they come back together. And so the book is Normal People. I also really highly recommend Sally Rooney's first book, Conversations with Friends. Enjoy that. Um, I am going to recommend this week a thing that you have quite possibly already heard about in your Twitter feed if you are on Twitter and listen to this show, which is uh, the second season of Amazon Prime's Fleabag. Oh, what? Uh, the devil you is, say. <laughs> which is Phoebe Waller-Bridge's labor of love about a woman named Fleabag. We only know her as Fleabag. The first season, she went through the loss of her best friend, and there was a lot going on between her and her family. And she also does a lot of, did a lot of dating with kind of ungenerous and uninteresting sex that wasn't very satisfying. It has a very particular style, including a lot of fourth wall breaking. And in the second season, she begins to explore a more genuine connection between Fleabag and another person. And that leads to, uh, in turn, an examination of faith and the importance of different kinds of love in your life and different kinds of closeness and value. And again, as as I also think is true of Booksmart, that line between you don't always get what you want, but it's not always cruelty and it's life is complicated and all that stuff. Uh, it's just great. It really is wonderful. And it's one of those things I put off because people were recommending it so hard. I put it off for a while. Truly, truly loved it. Uh, Second season of Fleabag streaming on Amazon. And that brings us to the end of our show. You can find all of us on Twitter. You can find me at Linda Holmes. You can find Stephen at I Dislike Stephen. You can find Glenn at G.H. Weldon. And you can find Katie at Love is Maroon. You can find our producer, Jessica Reedy, at Jessica underscore Reedy. And our producer, Lauren Landau, at Lauren M. Landau. Our producer, Emeritus and music director, Mike Katzif, is at Mike Katzif. That's K-A-T-Z-I-F. Mike's band, Hello, Come In provides the music you are bobbing your head to right now. So thanks to all of you guys for being here. Thank Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. If you have a second, do subscribe to our newsletter. It is at npr.org slash popculturenewsletter. We will see you all right back here next week. Mitch McConnell has become a champion for conservatives. But back in the day, he once got support from groups like labor unions. I've marked it down as one of the worst things I've ever done in my life. So you thought about it over the years. Oh, I still think about it every time I see his face. Mitch McConnell, a new series from Embedded. Subscribe now.